the impact of the pandemic has been immense, apocalyptic, if you like, on air travel in and out of New Zealand. People should anticipate, you know, international travel restrictions for quite some time. COVID-19 shut borders and cut us off from normal travel overseas. But that's starting to change. A much-awaited COVID-19 report says we could welcome international visitors back by 2022. Kia ora, I'm Jessie Chang, and today on The Detail, the future of air travel in a COVID world. Even if we do open up, what's the demand? Uh, companies are going to be a little nervous about uh, putting their employees on planes. There's duty of care obligations, uh, health and safety. And then there's a push for sustainable aviation. International aviation is a real problem for um, reducing emissions because none of the other uh, tools really work very well. What are the renewable options we have and what's the role the consumer has to play? We'll get to sustainability later, but first, Grant Bradley, the business aviation writer at the New Zealand Herald, explains where we are when it comes to opening up to the rest of the world. Just as this Delta outbreak hit Auckland, uh, the Prime Minister outlined uh, some conditions for reopening early next year. She was unable to put um, specific dates on. Uh, she was unable to give detail of, of, of the scale of the reopening. But uh, as this government has done throughout, it's uh, very much uh, around risk. So the thinking in mid-August, which uh, as far as I know hasn't changed, and actually because of the Delta outbreak and the uh, accelerated vaccination programme, it may actually bring it even uh, closer, is that the countries that uh, we'll be able to fly to will be divided into various degrees of risk, low risk, medium risk and high risk travel pathways. Um, And uh, there'll be all sorts of testing and isolation regimes around that, uh, but these are to be advised. The MIQ system is, of course, the current massive barrier for travel, and it's prompted the government to look at things such as isolation at home and private hotels, starting with a trial for business travel. About 150 spots for that. I think they're about 400 applicants. And uh, interesting, the uh, government is um, getting behind a, a, a bit of a DIY initiative by Serene Taylor. A win for business yesterday. Approval for Sir Ian Taylor by the government to trial a private self-isolation system for international travel designed to free up spaces in MIQ for returning Kiwis. He will go on a trip to the States uh, as part of, with his uh, animation research company and come back uh, isolated in the hotel, and he'll um, self-police every step of the journey. I've looked at MIQ and thought there's got to be a better way to do this, and we should not be taking spaces for people who have been stuck overseas, haven't seen their families, haven't been able to come home for funerals. You know, there's just so many horrendous stories. And that business can find another way to, to help the government take the weight off the MIQ system, which is really struggling at the moment. He's hoping to be a trailblazer here and uh, set a bit of a template for for other business travellers in particular to get back out there and uh, and start Uh, getting back out into the world and um, interacting with businesses, which is absolutely crucial for for the economy. 
is corporate travel still alive and breathing then? Yeah, look, corporate travel is um, alive and breathing. It, uh, the uh, size of the corporate travel market was uh, put in 2019 at uh, over $2 trillion. So that's, uh, that's a high-stakes game, obviously, that uh, more than halved uh, in 2020. And it's, just, it's showing um, faltering recovery in markets around the world as borders open, open up. Um, the airline industry is, um, although wounded, there, there's optimism developing there. there. There's a will to travel by corporates, but um, whether it will reach its 2019 heights is, is another matter, I suppose. Uh, anyone's uh, crystal ball is as uh, good as the next person's, but um, there's the, the feeling is, the consensus is that we're not going to see that corporate travel market recover to what it was uh, for at least um, two or three years, maybe longer, if it will ever get back to the highs it was in pre-pandemic times. And uh, and that's because uh, companies are going to be a little nervous about uh, putting their employees on planes. There's duty of care obligations, uh, health and safety. Uh, and the other thing is that... Um, well, they'll be looked to lock in the savings that they've enjoyed by uh, running Zoom conversations. And um, when you think about it, a lot of these uh, companies, big companies, have been um, badly hit by the pandemic, and they're going to be looking to make cost savings wherever they can. Mm. It's, in a way, the most susceptible uh, part of the travel market to uh, crises. We've seen that um, immediately following 9-11 uh, during the GFC. What you'll find is that um, the first to start travelling again are those who have to visit friends and relatives, severe far traffic. And then the leisure travellers pile in because um, they need a holiday. But uh, generally, the uh, those business travellers who don't have to travel, don't absolutely have to travel, they're the last to get on board. But it's a, it's a crucial part of the market, I think, um, it's been put at uh, over 20% of the global travel market. And so that's uh, a, a really important part of it and very important for airlines. Uh, it is a, the cash cow for airlines, the, the business corporate market. They uh, account for about 5% of the seats, but uh, 30 to 40% of revenue. And I guess, you know, that makes sense because they're the ones having to travel regularly, right? If you're going for a holiday, you, you might go once every year or so. Yeah, that's right. Well, the thing about corporate um, travel is it's often booked late. That's what airlines like. If they've got seats, they can sell them for a higher price. And uh, companies uh, like to, well, most companies like to see their um, their staff travel in comfort so they're in a good frame of mind when they arrive at their destination. And also, uh, got to remember, we're, we're not just thinking about uh, travelling salespeople, people going to conferences. We're thinking about the uh, part of the market that uh, is uh, absolutely essential, the, the engineers, the, the people who install machinery, maintain machinery, and uh, fly and fly out workers in some cases. So these people travel up the front of the plane because they're doing a lot of travelling and they... Um, they're highly valued staff members and their companies want to see them travel in comfort. Apart from corporate travel, there's what you mentioned, the the leisure travel, right, and, and visiting family and friends. Is there a demand, do you think, for people wanting to go overseas? 
Oh, sure. Yeah, look, there's, um, there's high demand, especially for that VFR segment. Uh, we saw that when the Trans-Tasman bubble opened up. Thousands of travellers are expected to fly between Australia and New Zealand today, the first day of the quarantine-free travel. A lot of um, Kiwis who were living in Australia, they, they piled onto uh, planes very quickly. Uh, that re- really drove that market initially. The leisure market, well, that's uh, less sensitive to these shocks. And obviously, um, uh, some of the more um, nervous travellers, if you like, will be um, reluctant to get straight back onto a plane. People who are a little bit fearful of being tra- uh, stranded overseas. Again, I think the um, the overall travel market will take some time to recover. But uh, once the travelling public gets over that nervousness, and we've seen it here in New Zealand uh, when uh, midwinter um, the domestic market was running very strongly. Air New Zealand reporting leisure bookings in July uh, higher than they've ever been. So there is a, uh, a large pent up demand to travel. And uh, so I think we'll see that uh, next year. It's uh, the, the big question is what are the conditions that uh, New Zealanders will be able to? to travel under uh, and uh, where will they be able to go quarantine-free, which is the important thing, and what will the uh, requirements be when they come home. And we'll be looking at the issue of vaccine passports in another episode next week. There'll be a a greater focus on um, sustainability um, post-COVID or on the COVID recovery, I should say. Grant Bradley says it'll be a lot harder to justify things like regular corporate travel. When a business traveller has about three times the carbon footprint of an economy class passenger, well, that's going to come under uh, increased scrutiny. And uh, a lot of these um, big firms do have sustainability commitments that they have to honour now. I think there's no question that the reason for the dramatic drop-off in transport emissions in New Zealand in the past um, year has been largely due to aviation. That's Jonathan Milne, the managing editor for Newsroom Pro. He says transport emissions in New Zealand have halved in the past year from 8 to 4%. People haven't been able to fly around New Zealand so much and they have barely been able to fly internationally at all. Of course, international aviation emissions are counted quite differently from domestic aviation emissions. So here in New Zealand, um, if Jetstar or Air New Zealand um, flies between Christchurch and Auckland, those numbers count towards New Zealand's greenhouse gas emissions. Mm. However, our international figures, if, if Air New Zealand flies to Sydney or Hong Kong, um, it isn't counted. There's a different system entirely for counting those emissions. Right, what is that system and, and where does it get attributed to? Okay, it's called Corsia um, and it's essentially an offsetting system. Um, international aviation is a real problem for um, reducing emissions because none of the other uh, tools really work very well. So what are the, I guess, alternative sustainable options that we do currently have on the table for aviation, especially, um, you know, those long-haul flights? Currently on the table, not much. We've got offsets, uh, planting trees. It's 
you know, it's only sustainable in the very loosest sense of the word. It's really trading off the problem somewhere else and making making it someone else's problem to deal with. Going beyond um, offsets, um, we do have sustainable aviation fuels on the market now, and they are starting to be used internationally. Some of these fuels can just be dropped into existing planes, and there's work underway to potentially manufacture sustainable aviation fuel in New Zealand. Um, Refining New Zealand is one of the companies that's um, looking at solutions around that up at its Marsden Point facility. And last month, the government announced it was partnering with Air New Zealand to explore the feasibility of setting up our own supply of sustainable aviation fuel, also known as SAF. Air New Zealand says SAF has the potential to decrease carbon emissions by 85%. It's a mixture of normal fossil-based kerosene and renewable hydrocarbon, basically carbon that is made from organic sources. If we take one that's being talked about a lot in New Zealand, that's forestry biomass. So basically it's the off-cuts from all those trees we chopped down, all those all those pinus radiata up from East Cape and Northland. Um, that's pretty attractive to the Marsden Point people. They want to um, take all that um, all that waste from the Northland forestry, transport it over to Marsden Point, what's currently a refinery, but they see themselves converting it into potentially a biofuel production facility mm. if, if, if they can get support from government. They could basically turn that wood chips um, into fuels and biomass, which is solid fuel, um, that can be used for all kinds of purposes. It could be to power the big um, generators at Huntley Power Plant, but it could equally be um, to create, and it's a slightly more convoluted process, but a foundation fuel to create a subsequent fuel that would fuel um, uh, international jets. That's doable with today's technology, um, but it's still not a complete solution because you're still burning carbon into the atmosphere. Mm. What you're doing is you're getting that carbon from a more sustainable source, from a renewable source, that is trees, so it hasn't been sequestered in the ground for thousands of years like petroleum has, but it is still doing, I guess, what I would say is half the damage of um, what petroleum does. So there's no kind of fuel currently on the market that doesn't use carbon? No, I don't think there is. Not that that I'm aware of. Um, It it doesn't emit carbon. Um, And look, I I think somewhere back in the the chain, you're going to find carbon emissions in pretty much any kind of fuel at present. Mm. There are fuel technologies underway um, being developed um, that um, airlines are putting a lot of hope on. Electric planes, obviously, are among those. Sounds Air and um, and Blenheim has um, ordered three of those. So they could be solutions for short hops. There are already electric planes being trialled on short hop commercial routes in um, Hawaii and Scotland. And then there's hydrogen fuel cells. Air New Zealand has signed a memorandum of understanding with Airbus to investigate the viability of hydrogen-powered aircraft. They hope that those could handle international hops and international long haul, but there's a lot of work still to be done. There's work to be done around developing the planes, and Airbus thinks that they can get these things in the year by 2035, I think, 2030 or 2035, 
Boeing is far more skeptical. They reckon that they're not going to be commercially viable to about 2050, which is just way too late. Mm. We need to be reducing our emissions a lot before then. You know, if we wait till then, the horse has bolted. The hydrogen also, the, the, the challenge there is not just around developing the planes, which Airbus is working on, but also um, producing the green hydrogen and getting it to the right place at the right time. Now, that's where we actually have an advantage in New Zealand because um, there's some really good work being done around green hydrogen. We've got Haringa in Taranaki is um, producing green hydrogen. And there's a really exciting and big project uh, down in Southland. The old TY Point aluminium smelter in Southland could be turned into the world's largest green hydrogen plant. Contact and Meridian are seeking partners for the project, which would make New Zealand a world leader in clean energy. The idea is that it will use all the power, all the uh, renewable hydropower from the Southland lakes that will come free when the TY Point aluminium smelter quits New Zealand at the end of 2024, and that's looking increasingly likely to happen. When they quit, then we'll turn all of that cheap renewable hydropower into um, manufacturing green hydrogen, and that will be primarily for the export market, and it could well be for the international aviation market. Mm. Isn't hydrogen highly contentious, though? Uh, there are just as many people for it as there are against it in terms of when you convert it, you, you actually lose quite a lot of the energy that it makes it not quite worth it? Yeah, look, absolutely. The renewable electricity that goes into manufacturing it, um, a lot of that does disappear in the, in, the, uh, in the process of burning it. We do have a lot of renewable energy to start with, though, so that puts us in a good position. As long as it's down in, uh, down in the South Island where we don't have to transmit it across the Cook Strait Cable, that adds all kinds of extra complications. Some of the ad other added complications is how do you transport it around? Most likely we would be converting it to liquid hydrogen, which has to be um, stored at super cold. I think it's like about 200, minus 230 degrees Celsius and then shipped around the world in double-skin, highly insulated tanks, which take a lot of space, a lot more space than existing fuel tanks um, because they have to be so well insulated to keep it cold. And these more sustainable options are important to help airlines reach net zero carbon by 2050. That's um, where in New Zealand and most international airlines are aiming to be. It's a long way off. That is one of the concerns around new plane technologies like um, hydrogen fuel cell planes. I saw an interesting interview with, um, in, in, in the Financial Times with um, Alan Epstein. He says that relying on hydrogen to get us to net zero just isn't going to be good enough. And that's because you have to replace all the planes. So even if the technology was developed sufficiently soon, 2030, as Airbus talks about, You've got to replace the entire international air fleet with these new planes. Mm. You've got to build all these new planes. They're not going to miraculously all turn up in the skies and on the tarmac at our airports on the dot of 2030. That's a very long fleet renewal process. Jonathan Milne says it will take a mixture of all the available sustainable options to make a difference. And ultimately, the consumer has to play their part too. This is where you probably won't hear 
in New Zealand or any other airline talking very bullishly, but I'm going to say what they're not going to say, which is we've got to fly less, you know. You can't rely on carbon offsets and planting trees. We've just got to be smarter, and that's something for all of us in our daily lives that we know. Uh, we know we've got to be smarter in our energy use around our homes, and of course we've got to be smarter around flying. That's it for today. I'm Jessie Chang. The detail is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air and is a joint newsroom and RNZ production. You can download us free to your mobile phone every day on any podcast platform. Jeremy Ansell engineered this episode, Alexia Russell produced it, and thanks to Grant Bradley and Jonathan Milne. Ka kite anō.